My name is Lane. I'm the lead pastor here at Red Hills Church. This week, it is true, we are starting a new series called Waiting Well, Faithfulness in the In-Between. And like Brett said, it does finally feel like we're getting into fall, right? The mornings are getting chillier. Uh, I busted out my boots for the first time in like six months. I'm wearing a flannel, yay, Northwest, right? Pumpkin flavors are abounding in every coffee shop. And you know what fall signals? Fall signals the arrival of the holiday season. And some of you, God help you, are already trying to convince your loved ones to play Christmas music. And to you I say, get behind me, Satan. It is, it is not time. The turkeys must come down before the Christmas trees go up. And that is, this is the way. So, <laughs> but the reason why we are moving into a series considering the nature of waiting It's because Christmas revolves around a cycle of waiting when it comes to God's people. The advent or the arrival of Christ, uh, although he walked the earth for uh, a while while he was here in the first century, we find ourselves in another age of waiting for the fulfillment of the promises that he began while he was here. Between the last chronological events of the Old Testament in Nehemiah and the birth of Jesus, there was what we refer to as the intertestamental period, or the 400 years of silence. Malachi was the last prophet to speak on behalf of God until John the Baptist in the first century AD. But during those 400 years between the prophets, there was what seemed to be radio silence from God. Although Nehemiah had rebuilt the temple, which we'll talk about next week, the presence of God apparently never came back to dwell in the temple the way that it had before. So in that time, in the intertestamental period, it was a time of waiting. What now? And now we're about 2,000 years into another age of waiting as we await Christ and the renewal of all things. We spend a lot of our time waiting, right? Most of our lives occupy the space in between big moments. Much of our day-to-day is spent in the ordinary And although it's true that God promises big things in the scriptures and carries out extraordinary acts and invites us into the unimaginable, even the miraculous, this faith journey, however, is filled with seasons of waiting. And waiting can be really difficult, right? We desperately want to see the whole picture. We want to know how things are going to turn out. Our prayers often echo the psalmist, right? How long, O Lord? Why does God make us wait? I hate waiting, (laughs) right? For those of you who know, you know. And if you don't, watch The Princess Bride tonight. That needs to happen for you tonight. If not, I'm concerned for you. We'll have a a meeting. Um, We don't like waiting. But whether, whether we like it or not, waiting seems to be something that Jesus uses to try to teach us something, right? C.S. Lewis wrote this, I am sure that God keeps no one waiting unless he sees that it is good for him to wait. So we just got through the book of James, right? And in those teachings, we learned that a Jesus follower, being a Jesus follower, it means that we take up a deep trust and devotion, a robust faith. And we must draw the conclusion that if God is waiting for something, has us waiting for something, that it must be for a good reason. If we do trust him, we need to believe this. But the question is that we're going to be wrestling with today, what are we waiting for? Knowing what we are waiting for is by far the most important factor in what keeps people waiting, right? 
People don't just stand in lines not knowing what they're waiting for. Hey, what is this line for? We don't know. We just wanted to get together and wait together. That doesn't happen. No one likes waiting in line, but we are more willing to wait in line if we feel like the thing we're waiting for is worth it, right? Do you remember when In-N-Out Burger opened up in Kaiser for the first time? Oh my gosh. Or when Chick-fil-A opened up in Beaverton? People were willing to wait in that line that went around the block for hours because they felt that that chicken sandwich or that animal-style fry was worth it. Jury is still out on whether or not their hopes turned out to be warranted. Why do people wait for, in line for, for two hours at Galaxy's Edge in Disneyland for Rise of the Resistance? Because they believe their dreams will be fulfilled. And from what I've heard, it's absolutely true, and I hope to join the ranks of the blessed one day. <laughs> This last year, I got summoned for jury duty for the first time. I know, I'm 31 years old. I'd managed to dodge it this whole time. But somehow, uh, I managed to, to receive it in an unlikely hour, and I was not looking forward to jury duty. Like all of you, I was busy. I had things to do, and this was going to interrupt my life in a very inconvenient way. So I had a bad attitude going into it, right? Now, for some reason, as I drive to the courthouse, the parking structure where we're all supposed to park is, is really hard to find. And I'm the kind of person who likes to be at the movie theater before the previews start. Anyone else with me? Nope? Okay, all right, moving on. Um, I'm the kind of person who likes to be early, so I thought I gave myself plenty of time to find parking uh, at the courthouse, but it took me like 10 minutes from driving around, looking at the map that they put in the envelope that they mailed to me, and I'm saying things pastors probably shouldn't say, trying to find it. And I finally figure it out, but it doesn't help that uh, I have a terrible sense of direction to begin with, right? I need Google Maps to help me find my own kitchen. So I'm struggling. I'm late. But I finally park my car, and I start power walking to the courthouse. And when I arrive at the entrance, I find at least 100 people uh, in line waiting at the entrance. So I find that I am late to wait in line <laughs> to be early, right? I stood there for 30 minutes. And as I stood in this line, I felt resentment building up inside of me, right? I didn't want to be here. Clearly, I wasn't crucial to the selection process since there's 150 other people you could choose besides me, and it was cold, right? In haste to make it to the courthouse, I forgot my jacket, so I'm sitting there shivering, and I'm annoyed. I didn't want to be there. But as I stood in line, I started to take notice of the garden in the courtyard of the building. It was gorgeous. The grass was really pristinely manicured, and there's all these beautiful ferns and Right in front of the doors were these huge sequoia trees that you could tell had been there for hundreds and hundreds of years. The architecture of the building was impressive. They had these four Greek-style pillars that towered over the entrance. And as I took in the scene, I began to experience this sense that I was participating in something deeply rooted in the history of democracy, that there was this legacy of justice of the people by the people, and I began to sense this duty rise up in me, right? Like, I should, you know, I should be proud as an American citizen to participate in our justice system. And then I thought, you know what? I have, I have an obligation to step in and fill a spot on the jury. I, I can't, can't lie to get dismissed from the jury, which I know none of you have ever done. I couldn't lie. If I didn't serve, who would? What if a person who took my place was like a closet Nazi or something? Or what if Vladimir Putin was disguised as an American citizen and was planning to infiltrate the American people and take us down from within in Hillsborough, Oregon? Um, <laughs> my contribution to justice could be the only thing that stays the downfall of democracy as we know. I know it's dramatic, but I'm dramatic. So I'm having these thoughts, right? But seriously, after, after all of this 
attitude. Suddenly, after all the convenience, after all my frustration and discomfort and resentment, when I realized what was at stake, suddenly my waiting had meaning, right? What moments ago I found unbearable, intolerable, was now completely tolerable. I had this new sense of endurance and patience, yeah? I ended up not being needed and they sent me home, but whatever. (laughs) I think we all want to know that the time we spend waiting will amount to something that's worthwhile. I think we all want to know that if we endure on this side of eternity, that it will hold significance. And we spend much of our time waiting. We tend to remember these big moments in between our lives when we make big decisions, where we choose to go to school, where we what we choose to study, our professions, what we lose our first loved one, when we get our first job, when we meet, uh, if we meet our our spouses, if and when we experience our first breakup, if and when we have a kid, when we move out on our own, we get our first roommate, when we first become alienated from a friend, etc. We have these big moments in our lives that are powerful and they mean a lot to us, which is why we tend to remember them. But those turning points make up a very small percentage of our days. Most of our days spent on the earth is spent in between those big things. So some might argue that how we handle ourselves in between those big things, that it matters a lot. And if we're going to make Jesus the Lord of all of our lives, he probably wants to be the Lord of that part of it too. So what does it look like to invite Jesus into the waiting and to see what he has for us in it? We like to know that our lives are pointing to something, that it matters Which is why the scriptures encourage us all the time. They encourage us to keep going. Run the race. Do not lose heart. Take courage. Keep going. So for today's passage of scripture, we're going to the book of Romans. Romans was written by the Apostle Paul, whom we know wrote most most of what we know as the New Testament. He's writing to the Christian church in Rome, who has recently experienced a lot of hardship and division. And now, Paul is hoping to bring the church together under the shared hope of the gospel. In the first section of Romans, in chapters 1 through 4, Paul writes about what Jesus is saving us from, that we are all enslaved to sin, in need of Jesus' death and resurrection to deliver us out of slavery. And then in the second section of Romans, Paul writes about what Jesus is saving us to, and what divine hope looks like as Jesus' followers. So we're going to jump right into the middle of the letter in chapter 8, starting in verse 22. And at this point in the letter, Paul is making a differentiation between life led by the flesh and life led by the spirit. Now, by flesh, this term doesn't refer to just our bodies, right? The body is not innately bad. We don't hold to a Gnostic, Platonistic, disembodied philosophy, which aims to leave behind the physical in favor of the spiritual. And we'll talk more about that in a bit. But the flesh in this context refers to rather the carnal sin nature of human beings. Paul has spent a lot of time reminding Christians of the hope that although all of us have, quote, fallen short of the glory of God, unquote, because of Jesus' death and resurrection and the gift of the Holy Spirit, we are no longer ruled by that sin nature the way we were before but invited into the life of the Spirit, which is characterized by God's goodness. But, although we have been given the Spirit and have been invited into the kingdom of God, we live in this space between the promise that Jesus gives that one day everything will be made new 
and the fulfillment of that promise. We live in between that space. So let's go to Romans 8, verse 22. We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship and the redemption of our bodies. For in this we hope we were saved. We hope that we hope that is seen excuse me, but hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes for what they already have? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. All right, so let's unpack this a little bit. Paul describes this groaning as in the pains of childbirth, leading right up to the present time. This analogy grabs you quite effectively, doesn't it? Anyone who has experienced childbirth or has been there with someone else who has experienced childbirth, I happen to be in that second category, you tend to understand what goes into this analogy. Labor, for many, can be a very long, drawn-out, and painful process. But we're used to what we see in movies, right, and TV, where the mom's just like enjoying herself at a family barbecue, and then suddenly, no matter who it is, their water breaks every time. And then, you know, they have to rush to the hospital, and the mom's ready to pop out the child in the taxi, and sometimes they barely make it, and they push for like two seconds, and then the baby's there, and it's always massive because it's a three-month-old covered in jello, right? And then <laughs> everyone's smiling, and the credits roll. But those of you who know, you know, right? Like, Jaina, my wife, when, we, when she gave, first, gave birth to our first child, um, it lasted 30 hours, that labor. It's a long time. Yeah, and those contractions, they can go on for a while. And when she was finally ready to push, she pushed for two and a half hours, which is long. <laughs> I didn't know how strong my wife was until she gave birth. And no, I don't mean like, yeah, her heart's so strong. No, I mean like her biceps are strong. Like, she had a contraction once, and she grabbed me by the lapels and pulled me in, you know, like a bully trying to take my lunch money. Like, strong. And I can, like... I can still hear her groaning. Like, it's a very primal, very spiritual sound. And I don't really know how to describe it, but I remember when I heard her laboring for our first child, I suddenly had context for this passage in Romans. I mean, that's not why we had a baby or anything. I'm not like, hey, love, I'm running out of sermon illustrations. Could you, uh, you know, have a painful labor and delivery? I need stories. That wasn't why, but in all seriousness... The imagery here is so effective, isn't it? It describes this thing that you can't really know until you, you, you see it or experience it for yourself. The fall of human beings in Genesis, it carried the consequence that there would be pain in childbirth. There's this idea that if there is to be new life in this broken world, it's going to come with great pain, endurance, and patience. Paul writes that all creation groans. There's this reality that in order to receive the gift of new life, it's going to require that we remain faithful to see the journey through to the end, right? And what Paul is talking about is not personal salvation. What he's talking about is the journey that we all join when we realize that this world is currently not in its final form, 
and neither are we, that there is something greater coming. Like a pregnant mother, we, the church, the bride of Christ, we have been given the gift of new life, but the world and the church must endure great trials, labor in great pain before we finally see it revealed. And once we see it face to face, we're going to know that it was worth it. I remember when I saw my son's face for the first time, I can't describe it to you. It was like I changed. It was like who I am was different from that point forward. And all of this anticipation, all of this pain, all of this labor, all this exhaustion finally led up to this moment where we saw the delivery of our hope face to face, and then we knew. We understood what all of this was leading up to. But until we experience it, you just can't know. Paul refers to us, the church, as the first fruits of the Spirit. This term, first fruit, it refers to the first portion of the harvest, which signals what's coming. So we, the church, those who follow Jesus, those who upon saying yes to Jesus receive the Holy Spirit, the presence and the power of God, we represent a reality, which through the death and resurrection of Jesus, it has begun. It's not fully arrived, but the harvest is coming. We are a signal to what the rest of the kingdom is supposed to look like. But right now we live in this in-between space of the promise between Jesus' kingdom and the fulfillness. Fulfillness? That's not a word. The fulfillment of it. And that's a really frustrating place to be in, right? We live with this frustrating awareness that the Spirit gives us, and it's good. But there's evil around us that is relentless, that makes it very hard to, to, to bear this life. The New Testament scholar N.T. Wright, he says, Schools and hospitals bear witness to the now already of the gospel, while police and prisons bear witness to the not yet. We, we witness the principles of the fruit of Jesus unfold all around us as people who, we see them heal, we see them choose to build up and to encourage and to dignify and to liberate and to love. We see the, the kingdom breaking through, but we also face a brutal reality where around us people are choosing to envy and to kill and to enslave and to tear down, to degrade and to hate. When we look at the world around us because of the Spirit in us, we, live in, 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 we realize we live in this world as it was not intended to be, that something is wrong and that it needs to be remade. C.S. Lewis wrote, If we find ourselves with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that we were made for another world. And that world is coming. But until then, creation groans because it is painfully aware of both how the world is right now and how glorious its renewal will be. And then Paul uses the analogy of being adopted into sonship. He combines the analogy of childbirth and adoption. When we enter into life with Jesus, it is like a birth. It's like a new birth being born again. But it's also like being adopted, being brought out of our former lives and into the love and inheritance of a new one. And then Paul writes about the redemption of our bodies, Part of what we tend to envision as Christians in the West is a reality where we leave our bodies behind in order that we float around on clouds forever with Jesus in heaven. But the reality that the kingdom that Jesus inaugurated through his death and resurrection, it began with a physical thing. It began with a physical resurrection from the dead, something dead being made alive again. It was an embodied kingdom. This may seem like splitting hairs, but it's actually important because our hope is not that one day we get to leave all this behind 
and leave all this death behind us. Our hope is that one day all this evil and death, when Jesus comes, will be revoked. Not only will our pain and suffering be worth enduring so that we can get to something better, but it will somehow, all of this pain and suffering will be exchanged for new life, woven into the tapestry of a new way of being. And because we are the first fruits of this reality, that means that we get to see some of that transformation and renewal come to pass in our lifetime. The gospel hope is not just for something that will happen later. It is something that through the Spirit can happen right now. The dead things can be made alive today. And this matters because if we just have an escapist mentality that we're going to leave all this evil behind to get to something disembodied later, then we just kind of hunker in. We say, well, we just got to wait for the end. But we're not meant to hunker down in a holy huddle and wait for the end. We have work to do. With this hope, we can cling to the truth that nothing is truly beyond God's redemptive power. There is no broken relationship, no addiction, no debt, no sin, no evil that cannot be overcome by the power of God. And we may not see it fully now, but we are the first fruits of what is to come. And yet, Paul acknowledges that death is not always reversed on this side of eternity and that we do need to wait patiently. We don't always glimpse what exactly it is we are waiting for, so we just have to be patient and we have to trust that whatever it is, it is good. He says we hope for what we do not yet have. And what we are waiting for is not just a what. It's not just the end of death, pain, suffering, loss, grief. It is the one who heals those things and offers us new life in place of them. So what are we waiting for? It's not so much the question, it's who are we waiting for? The promise and fulfillment of the kingdom is not a what, but a who. Notice that Paul describes us as the first fruits of the Spirit. It's a claim about relationship with God. We are not the first fruits of utopia. We are the first fruits of God's presence. The precursor of a fully redeemed relationship. It's like, it's like we're the betrothed of God. It's like the church, we're engaged to God. We are promised, we are on our way to the wedding date, but we're not quite there yet. And this is perhaps a good way to understand where we find ourselves today. We are committed, we're looking ahead, we're dreaming about what our lives will be like together. But once we are married, there is no way we could have possibly have understood what that marriage would entail. We would simply have to experience it ourselves. We don't know what we're waiting for, but because of who we're waiting for, we know it will be good. For the one the church is getting ready to marry is God. And God is fully good from whom no evil can come. Only goodness flows. He is holy. So the last thought in this passage is, is verse 28. And he says, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And we see the exact analogy actually of a wedding used by the Apostle John in the book of Revelation in chapter 21. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. 
They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. But while we wait for that promised reality, which sounds pretty good, we find ourselves in between. In between the delivery of the promise and the fulfillment of it. And I stole this framework from a pastor buddy of mine, but we have three ways that we can respond to our reality right now. We can despair. There's no hope. It's hopeless. The world around us is crazy. Just watch the news for, you know, three hours, and you'll start to feel that, right? There's no hope. Or we can, de- we can deny. We can say, well, things aren't really that bad. Things are pretty good. Put our head in the sand and just, just wait. Or we can hope. And hope acknowledges, yeah, listen, Things can get pretty grim out there. But for just as much inexplicable suffering and pain and evil there is in the world, there is just as much unexplainable goodness. And that goodness is the first fruits of what is coming. Any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in here? So the film adaptation of The Two Towers, there's a situation. I'm going to set the stage for you, okay? So we have the kingdom of men, Rohan, right? And they're under attack. There are 10,000 Urukai, which are the forces of Sauruban, and they want to conquer and kill all of the men and the women and the children. There's only 300 soldiers in the kingdom of Rohan. So they think, okay, we need to flee because there's no way we can survive this. So they go to one of their fortresses, right? They get into the fortress, and the battle begins. It's not going well. The orcs are starting to flood every uh, uh, section of the fortress, and they're having to retreat and retreat and retreat. And King Theoden, who's the king of the, of, the, of the kingdom, he looks to Aragorn, who's one of the heroes of our story, and he says this, as the orcs are breaking down the last barrier, the last gate between them and the women and children hiding in the tunnels, he looks at Aragorn and he says, what can men do? against such reckless hate. And you can see the despair settling in on his face. And then Aragorn remembers the words of the wizard Gandalf, who is a messianic figure in this story. And Gandalf, before he leaves to go find reinforcements, he pulls Aragorn aside and he says, look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day, and at dawn, look to the east. And he remembers that help is coming, so when Theoden says, what can men do against such reckless hates, he, look, uh, he looks at him and says, ride out with me. Ride out and meet them. Aragorn remembered the promise that help was coming. And knowing this, he knew that even himself and a few dozen soldiers against 10,000 would not be in vain. That his effort would mean something. And I think that's where we find ourselves It seems like the forces of evil are insurmountable. What could we possibly do to combat poverty? What could we possibly do to combat war? What could we possibly do to combat slavery? Ride out. You ride out and you meet the enemies of God because help is coming. You are the first fruits of what that kingdom represents. One of the first martyrs of the early church was someone named Perpetua. She was a martyr in the year 203 AD. 
she lived in North Africa, and she was kidnapped by the Roman, uh, or arrested by the, the Roman Empire because uh, Rome saw Christianity as a threat to, to Roman rule. So she was awaiting her trial to be executed, and her father came to visit her in prison because Perpetua had just given birth. She had a baby that was on the other side of the bars that needed to be nursed, and she had a family that was waiting for her. So the father goes to the prison to plead. All she needs to do is denounce her faith, and she can live. All she needs to do is say, I am not a Christian, to be brought back to her life and to her baby. And when he pleaded with her, she said this, Father, do you see this vase here? Could it be called by any other name than what it is? No, he replied. Well, neither can I be called anything other than what I am, a Christian. See, Perpetua would go on to be executed inside the Roman Colosseum, torn apart by animals. But eyewitnesses, upon seeing her walk into the Colosseum, they described her as beaming and glowing like a bride on her wedding day. She was awaiting execution, but really what she understood was that she was awaiting reunion. Perpetua, however short the rest of her life was, as long as she drew breath, it was breath spent in the service of her God. So we aren't hunkering down in a holy bunker. No matter how short our time is or how little we believe our lives matter in the grand scheme of things, we have work to do. Our call is to ride out. Ride out and meet them. We are to bear witnesses to the God with whom we are going to be reunited. The enemies of God They're an insult to the church. They're an insult to new creation. There are injustices that happen all around us that the church, on behalf of God, is to stand in the gap and say, not on my watch. Not on my watch. We don't just wait for the end. We don't just wait. We have work to do to represent the kingdom that is coming right here, right now. What brokenness is around you? What do you see that insults, that flies in the face of God's goodness, that cannot stand? It may seem insurmountable. It may seem that what you do to fight those things, that what you do to come against those things feels impossible, but guess what? You're not doing it on your own. You are the first fruit of the Spirit of God, and help is coming. Help is coming. We're going to go to communion. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. Communion is always very, very important. And we don't do this lightly. And this is a practice that is reserved for those who call Jesus Lord. But when we enter into this life with Jesus, we see for us modeled what it takes to see new life come forward. Great pain, great suffering, and even death. We lay our lives down for the sake of the kingdom, to see it come alive around us. And when we take in the elements of Christ's body and Christ's blood, we also receive the Spirit. 
we know that we don't do this alone. We do so in Christ's power through the empowerment of the Spirit, His presence with us. So let's pray. And as we do, know that the prayer teams will be available at the front uh, if you want to come and receive prayer. But for this first song, uh, we're just going to sit back and reflect, listen to the words, and invite the Holy Spirit to reveal to us uh, what he wants us to take away from his word today. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. We thank you for the way you laid down your life for the sake of the kingdom. And we ask that you would empower us to do the same, that we would ride out and meet the forces of evil during this in-between stage of life. As we wait for your promises, we remember that we are the representatives of that promise until you return. Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is my blood in the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me.